We're free people. We belong to no one. Such spirit. I wager 15 quatloos that he is untrainable. 20 quatloos that all three are untrainable. 5,000 quatloos that the newcomers will have to be destroyed. Rage to all decks. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. I'm Steve Morrison. I will bet you 5,000 Quatloos that we have an unbelievable guest today. I was going to use the Quatloos joke, but yes, Steve, of course, you beat me to it. We have a very, very special show. And of course, because we are referencing Quatloos, you know the episode we are going to do our deep dive this time on Enterprise Incidents is Gamesters of Triskelion. But what makes this episode particularly special is that we are being joined finally by Walter Koenig for our deep dive of this underrated and very entertaining Star Trek classic. So welcome to Enterprise Incidents, Walter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure being here with you. Well, you know, this episode... Gamesters of Triskelion is an episode I have always liked. It is, I always thought it was action packed and there was a big heart to it as well. There's a lot of levity and humor, courtesy of Chekhov and his drill thrall. But I've always liked it. And of course, rewatching the episode in preparation for this episode of Enterprise Incidents, Steve, of course, I found new things to love about sure. it. And I'm sure that, that, that uh, you know, we're going to have uh, a good conversation, especially when we, when we link this episode to some of the past ones. Agreed. I've always liked it, too, and particularly as someone who was fascinated by martial arts, this is one of the big fighting episodes, and it was fun to watch all the great fight scenes. And yes, there is definitely some stuff in here to discuss, and I'm particularly excited to hear what it was like to actually film the episode. Well, Walter, I want to ask you now, one of the things that that being a lifelong fan of, of Star Trek is that when I think of Star Trek, I think of Chekhov as being there the whole time. I think of Chekhov as being just as crucial to Star Trek as Uhura, of Scotty, as, of course, McCoy, Spock, and Kirk. But when you came on the series in season two, and I've said this to Steve many times during our conversations doing these episodes, I felt that Star Trek really hit its stride and was never better than when it was in its second season especially when you came on and while Gene Kuhn was producing the show for the first half of the season. So when you came on, uh, what, what memories do you have of Gene Kuhn? What made him a great writer producer from your perspective? Well, I got to tell you, gentlemen, I am, if nothing else, candid. So we may have, you may suffer some disillusionment after speaking to me. Um, I didn't know Gene. Uh, Gene had, uh, was infrequently on the set. I didn't have the sense that I could just drop by the offices and sit down and cross my legs and, uh, and uh, get into a conversation with either Gene, actually. I, I did come by uh, Gene Roddenberry's office once or twice, you know, to comment on it. On, on a speech and dialogue. And that was very infrequent as, as well. Uh, I was a new kid on the block and I felt I had to mind my P's and Q's and just go along. So I didn't take exception to very much. 
uh, I was grateful that I had a, an opportunity to, to come uh, uh, to work almost every week. Uh, that, that was really neat. And the reason why I came to work every week, uh, almost every week, is because George wasn't there, George Decay. Right. And that's something that most everybody knows. He was shooting the Green Berets with John Wayne. And I think it went overtime or it, it was extended. So a lot of the, the dialogue that would have that he would have been saying uh, fell to me. So I, I had a, in general, I you know just in general, and then I'll we'll get more specific. I had a good time. I was grateful for being there. I wouldn't say it wore off, but I got a little tired when week after week most of what I had to do was say I I kept in Ford kept in in fact in the third season, which you're not asking me about, I left the show for a month. I don't know if, if you know that. I went and I did a play just outside of Chicago with Jackie Coogan. Oh who, who had worked with Charlie Chaplin yeah. back in the day. The and that was the best month of my professional life. I had so much fun with him. And working with him was an absolute delight. There were no holes barred. He stole every scene he could, uh, but it was it was um, he, get, he gave me the same key, and I had never uh, had that kind of an environment to work in. So it was great fun. Okay, back to Gamesters of Triskelion. <laughs> what you, you were talking about how George Takei was off doing Green Berets, which went way over schedule, and. Yes, he was originally written in, and in fact, the episode in early versions of the teleplay, it started out with Kirk and Uhura and Sulu on a shuttlecraft, and they got rid of the shuttlecraft aspect because it reminded the the producers too much of both Galileo 7 and, of course, Metamorphosis. So more more so, I have to say, Walter, than, than the fact that Sulu's lines were given to Chekhov is this, is that... You made this episode and the character of, of Chekhov, like, like the, the personality really came through in the sense that, that there was more levity. And with regards to the relationship between Chekhov and Kirk, there was a, a, a more of a paternal relationship. I always thought that Kirk was really protective of Chekhov and you know, who mourns for Adonais? He was uh, uh, saying, like, you know, how old are you? And he says, I better handle it. You know, so with this particular episode, I felt the addition of Chekhov was a was a big bonus and a big plus to the episode because it really helped give Gamesters of Triskelion uh, a unique identity. I completely agree. What's so impressive to me about when you came on the show in the second season was we had seen all sorts of different actors come on, play different crew members for different episodes. And what was different when you came on was you immediately felt like part of the family, you know? And I was wondering if that reflected how you felt coming onto the set or if that was just something you were able to create in the performance. Well, everybody was, uh, to varying degrees, very friendly. Well, they can't all be very friendly. (laughs) Everybody was cordial. Uh, I don't know how you know. You know, this is sort of beating a dead horse at this point to say maybe less so with Bill Shatner than right. <laughs> everybody else. Uh, but 
In his defense, I must say that the show was fun because of him. Right. Because when he screwed up a line, it was a big laugh. I mean, everybody was able to laugh because he laughed. You know, he had a sense of humor about himself. Uh, aside from a nod in the morning, I got very little from him. But I didn't get any uh, any coldness or or uh, any animosity as well. You know, it was it was just it was fun being there. Uh, I, I got uh, Michelle was the first one that came up to me, and uh, since I was wearing a lady's wig, <laughs> she made a comment about bird's nest. That's when I first learned. And uh, the forest was uh, was wonderful, and that relationship never changed. It was mm. always he was liaison between the two groups of us, and right. we were definitely two groups: the Leonard, Bill, and the Forest group, and then the four people he didn't talk, the Bill didn't talk to: <laughs> George, Michelle, Jimmy, and myself. So, you know, I was just grateful. I, mean, I didn't know from week to week whether I'd be on. I didn't have a contract. So at the end of the of an episode, they would start handing out the, the script for the next episode, and there would be checkoff. I say, "Oh, I'm going to be in the next episode," and it was, it was that casual, you know. And that, that's how I found out some background information on Games of the Triskelion. So the episode was written by Margaret Armin, and this was the first of three original series episodes written by Margaret Armin. She also wrote season three's The Paradise Syndrome and the Cloudminders with David Gerald, who did The Trouble with Tribbles. But Margaret Armin also wrote two episodes for the animated Star Trek series, The Laurel Eye Signal and The Ambergris Element. And for other television shows, she wrote for The Rifleman, The Big Valley, The Mod Squad, Land of the Lost, The Bionic Woman, and Jason of Star Command. Uh-huh. So when Margaret Armin turned in her first outline, for Gamesters of Triskelion. It was actually called the Gamesters of Pentathlon, and that, that outline came in on April 10th, 1967. So she did a couple versions of the outline. The second outline, revised, came in at May 8th. Then Jean Kuhn revised her story outline on May 12th, and then Margaret Armand did a couple of draft teleplays, the polish of which came in on August 16th, And then John Meredith Lucas did a rewrite, a revised final draft teleplay dated September 28th, and he did further script changes on the fourth revised final draft teleplay. The Gamesters of Pentathlon was finally renamed the Gamesters of Triskelion on October 13th. It just rolled off the tongue easier. Well, that other name, I couldn't even say. What is it? Pentathlon. Pentathlon, yeah. (laughs) That's why. That's why. But the other thing about uh, the game Surger Triskelion, Walter, is that it was the 45th episode of Star Trek to air, and it was the first episode of Star Trek to air in 1968. It aired on January 5th, 1968, but it was the 48th episode to actually be filmed and it was filmed on schedule in six days between October 17th and October 24th, 1967. And around this time, in the latter part of the second season, the per-episode budget was around $180,000 per episode, which sounds like nothing. But this episode actually came uh, under budget. The final cost 
for Games of Triskelion was $179,844. Can you imagine producing a television show today for $179,844? No. No, I can't either. You know what my salary was? What was it? $750. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And a huge raise in, in salary from... My first season on the show to the second. First season, I got $650. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Well, the other noteworthy thing about Game Search of Triskelion is up to this point in the production of season two, all of the episodes of Star Trek were directed by the three top directors of the original series. So that would be Joseph Pevney, Mark Daniels, and Ralph Sinansky. They directed all the episodes of season two up to this point. This was directed by Gene Nelson, and Gene Nelson was a dancer and an actor before he became a uh, director, and he was, he, he was in films like The Daughter of Rosie O'Grady. He was in Tea for Two with Doris Day, and he played cowboy Will Parker in Oklahoma. Uh, now I can picture him. Now I know who you're talking about. Now he was hired at the last moment to do Gamesters when the original director who they don't know, like there's no record of who the original director was, but he had dropped out. And uh, on TV, he directed episodes of The Donna Reed Show, I Dream of Jeannie, and The Mod Squad. And he also directed two Elvis movies, not one. Which? He directed Kissing Cousins from 1963 and Harem Scarum from 1965. Okay, let me, let me give you an, an added totally insignificant fact. <laughs> Those are our favorite. <laughs> Joe Pevney yeah. cast me in an Alfred Hitchcock hour that he directed as the, as the head of the gang. He was a huge supporter of mine. He kept telling me when we were shooting Memos from Purgatory, which was written by Harlan Ellison. Oh, boy. Wow. City on the Edge of Forever, that I was going to be a star. And when it came to casting the part of Chekhov, he was one of the people in the room. Mm. He was inordinately uh, positive and affirming. Although I, I didn't really become a star, I did get steady work, and and he was part of the reason, you know. And the curious, the curious thing, and it, it does relate to gamesters and the humor that that you pointed out. When I auditioned for the part of Chekhov, the lines were literally on the order of Kipton. The sheep is about to blow up. <laughs> what are you going to do? And I got through, and the room was dead silent. And I thought, what, what did I do wrong? I mean, my God, it's... There's not a lot there. Yeah. I think it was Jane Roddenberry who said to me, that was good, Walter, but uh, can you make it funny? <laughs> can you make it funny? Maybe he had gangsters and Triskelion on the, on the mind because... My second reading was, Captain, guess what? The sheep is about to blow up. <laughs> That's what got me the role. Oh, wow. <laughs> Make it funny is one of the toughest directions you could possibly give an actor, particularly with a line like that. Something that where there's, yeah. no... there's nothing there. I mean, it's just, it's just stating some facts. So that is impressive. And something that people don't know in this industry is that actors, you got to have that person in your corner. You got to have someone, you know, a director, a casting director, an executive who likes you. That's how you're going to get the work, particularly to start out. And, and curiously, Mark Daniels, mm. for the first five or six episodes that he directed, never spoke to me. And I thought, this guy really hates me. 
And then we did I Mud. And he directed that. That's correct. Yeah. And I got a laugh out of him. And I said, oh, okay. And then after that, it was okay. You know? <laughs> but boy, for the first several episodes, he was... He never spoke to me, and I thought he—I thought he hated me. You know, it was one of those after things. What was that? What was that? I mean, to to come into a show into its second season, and I mean, because the first season of the show, I mean, nothing like this had ever been done, and it was like almost every single episode that they were doing in 1966 was different. They were paving their own way. And they, you know, they, they got the lay of the land, so to speak. And then when you came on, it's so great just to see how easily, how perfectly Chekhov fit in with that dynamic because of, like you said, of that, of that boost from Joe Pevney, the humor just was, it was perfect. Um, shall we get into the show? Let's get into the gangsters of Triskelion. Captain's log, stardate 3211.7. We are entering standard orbit about Gamma 2, an uninhabited planetoid with an automatic communications and astrogation station. So what I really love about this teaser is that it's actually banking on the fact that the audience already gets it. Because we don't have to explain what's going on. We're right in the middle of saying we got to beam down to some facility that Chekhov, Uhura, and Kirk are going to go. Spock's going to be in charge. And if I've watched the show, I go, oh, I get totally get what's going on. Until we get to the transporter room and everything goes different. They disappear. And not in the way that they're supposed to disappear on the transporter. They are just gone and they reappear on this outside area they're on their backs they're not even standing up and scotty calls up the spock immediately and says the captain lieutenant uhura and Chekhov, they got onto the transporter platform and they just vanished i presume you mean they vanished in a manner not consistent with the usual workings of the transporter mr scott like of course that's what i mean <laughs> you think i call it they just beam down <laughs> i think that the scotty spock relation this is the most we ever see of it i think where it's just the two of them and i think there's a very good sense of humor going on there and so spock is going to look for them on the planet and we go back to this strange platform with this strange paint job on it, uh, which I actually think looks really, really cool. And in comes these people. What's interesting about Games of the Triskelion, so this is, the, this is just the teaser. And, and the teasers that they did for the original Star Trek, that the setup was always so great. Because like Steve said, so Kirk and Chekhov and Uhura, they get up. Was that off trip? This is a Gamma 2. Look at the color of that sky. This is the craziest landing pad I've ever seen. Now that's a trinary sum. So Kirk calls the Enterprise. There's nobody there. Kirk even says dead. And as he shuts his communicator, we see this giant guy walk out with fangs and a knife. And that is Klug. That's the drill thrall Klug. And so far, the three of them have not seen them. And then we see Lars. Lars is the guy who looks like Val Kilmer. <laughs> Val Kilmer. <laughs> I, I assume he had a more pleasant disposition than Val did. <laughs> Lasers, on stun. And the way this, ep this part of the episode was directed, Walter, with, with you and Bill and Michelle, like, like you're standing back to back. Fire. And then he goes, because the phasers are not working. 
And Chekhov has to take on the big guy. Like, that guy was huge. Not only is he huge, but I'm small. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you something that I actually don't like so much and I, I wish we had more of, which is they give you the same kind of gag that you played in Trouble with Tribbles, which is punching the guy in the belly and not getting a reaction. And I really wanted Chekhov to have a great fight scene. I wish they had given you some cool choreography to do. Did you like doing stuff like that? Action scenes? I would. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's always fun. That's always fun. It would have been fun if I, I got to do one of the Kirk leaps. And, yeah. And miss. <laughs> oh, well, that, yeah. And then you get a little comedy out there of it. There you go. Yeah. And we're hearing that famous fight music. That was used from a, a mock time. We're going to hear that a lot. We're going to hear that a lot in this episode. And then Shauna comes up with her with her giant spear, knocks Kirk off his feet on his onto his back, and that brings us to the end of this exciting teaser. There's a lot going on in three minutes and twenty seconds. It is absolutely. Um, and we come back in Act One, and here's I, I know I've mentioned this before, but we hear a captain's log. How is he giving a log, and why is it in the present tense? Because He's saying this is what's happening right now. Well, he can't. It doesn't make any sense. I knew you were going to say that. I know. I know. <laughs> um, and, but we're right back to where we started. The blade is still at Kirk's throat. They let him up. And then appears Galt. Excellent, Captain Kirk. Galt. Galt is played by Joseph Ruskin. Who I did a play with. Oh. What was the play? It was called The Deputy. And uh, in fact, I have a group picture somewhere of the cast of Deputy. And literally everyone in that cast picture, with the exception of one man, made appearances on Star Trek. Is that right? Wow. Well, Joseph Ruskin was on TV. I mean, like, this guy worked all the time. He was on The Twilight Zone, The Untouchables, Death Valley Days, Mission Impossible, Charlie's Angels, Alias. On film, on the big screen, he was in more recent films like Indecent Proposal, The Scorpion King, Smoke and Aces. And even after his appearance in Gamesters of Triskelion, he was in three episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, one episode of Voyager, one episode of Enterprise, and he was also in the ninth uh, Star Trek movie, Insurrection. Oh, wow. That's a lot of Star Trek you did. A lot of Star Trek you did, yeah. You know the thing I was wondering watching it this time? Does Galt have arms? Uh, It's funny you should say that because the way that Joseph Ruskin played Galt is you don't see his arms and you also really don't see him walking. You see him floating. Yeah. And it depends on who you talk to. Gene Nelson takes credit for that. But then uh, Joseph Ruskin also takes credit for that because his legs were covered with his costume that he wanted it to appear like Galt was actually floating, not walking. He's very Nosferatu-like, like that old that old vampire silent movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Either of you hurt? I don't think so, Captain. Nobody's hurt, Captain. Yet. Galt gives Chekhov a compliment. Admirable, Chekhov. Admirable. <laughs> Which is great. It's a great moment. It's also why I wish you had had more fight scene, because then it would have been more impressive when you made that threat. I am Galt. Master Thrall of the planet Triskelion. I have been sent to welcome you. And then we get a hard cut to, what's the big guy's name? Klug. Klug, pushing like into Shatner's face. Yeah. In a very weird way as they put these collars on everybody. There, Captain. Now you are prepared for your training. How do you know our names? The 
The providers were expecting you, Captain. One of the things that I always liked about Star Trek when it was at its best, and, and we talked about this many times, it, it's all about the mystery, establishing the mystery. Like we hear the name, the providers, we haven't seen them, and we haven't heard them yet. This place is the planet Triskelion. You are to be trained and spend the rest of your lives here. At that moment, you see this look on Kirk's face where it's maybe hitting him a little. Maybe maybe our lives are over as we know it. And then we cut to the bridge. And this is the first of many, many scenes of basically Spock, McCoy, and Scotty. Whatever that power surge was, it had nothing to do with the transporter or with any other system aboard the ship. I'm beginning to believe that, Mr. Scott. Because he has conducted sweeps of the planet and he hasn't found anything. And that is when McCoy McCoys it up. And what the devil is happening? Does that mean their atoms are just floating around out there? And this is the big thing. This is the mystery is how are we going to find what happened to Uhura, Chekhov, and Kirk? Early on in the, in the outlines and the first couple of teleplays that were done for gamesters, the scenes on the bridge of the Enterprise, Spock and McCoy and Scotty, and this is in early versions, they were in complete agreement. There was no conflict there. It wasn't until John Lucas, when he came in to did his polish and his rewrites, when they were filming, that he spruced up the dialogue and added the conflict where McCoy and Scotty were basically defying almost Spock's decision to search elsewhere for the landing party. But that conflict was integral to what made this episode so so good because you got the conflict on the planet, you've got the conflict on the Enterprise, and this is not the first time we're going to see a dynamic where uh, you know Scotty or 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 even the the bridge the bridge crew are are questioning Spock's decision to go across the galaxy. That's something we're going to see in you know the that which survives. It's so funny because if you were to read the book I've been writing forever on directing, which someday I will finish, one of the basic chapters is always have conflict. There has to be conflict in a scene. Otherwise, it's just exposition pouring out. Is That's the only way to make And that's what I think Star Trek always does so well, particularly because you have the Kirk-Spock-McCoy relationship, is there's always going to be disagreement there. And that's what creates drama in the scene. you got to have that. Um, I do like the ending of the scene where... Spock says, at the moment, that is all we can do, except hope for a rational explanation. Hope? I always thought that was a human failing, Mr. Spock. True, Doctor. Constant exposure does result in a certain degree of contamination. Spock's kind of funny in this episode. He is, in his, in his own Spock way. So we cut back to the planet, and Chekhov and Uhura and Kirk are being shown to their quarters. And this is where... Kirk and Chekhov start like looking at each other, thinking this is our moment. And I'm wondering when they set that up, because it's so clear that you have a eye contact with Kirk and know in the moment before that you're going to try to fight the guards. I was wondering in terms of how that moment was directed or were you, did, did you plan things out with Bill on how to do it beforehand? I have absolutely no memory. <laughs> I'm rocking on my chair here uh, when you tell me that uh, Kirk and Chekhov had a moment. <laughs> it is. It's a really nice eye contact moment. I don't ever remember. Other than, you know, Chekhov uh, 
where are we or something. Uh, I don't ever remember having moments. But in any case, um, no, I don't, I don't remember that. Um, it's curious that I don't have a, a stronger memory because there were so few real moments uh, that, I, that Chekhov had with Kirk. Um, as, as I recall, of course, I'm also 85 now, guys. <laughs> I recall everything. Um, I'm 53 and I don't recall everything. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> I vaguely remember that we got into fights with the guards. And that's when Galt closes his eyes and activates the, uh, the cowers of obedience. <laughs> the three of them drop to the ground, writhing in pain. And when I was doing my rewatch, you know, it occurred to me between the fights in the arena and the whole thing with the cowers of obedience that... This is a pretty violent episode for 1968 uh, 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 when the, when it finally aired. But it was also, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, from what you recall, more of a physical episode because you know you had to do, do a little bit of fighting and you were riding on the floor with the with the the cowards of obedience. What do you remember about that? What I remember is Chekhov isn't going to get the the very pretty girl. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Boy. Boy, does she look out of place to me in this episode. I mean, this is consciously determined casting, piece of casting. Yeah. We're going to see a really gorgeous lady who was a stripper, by the way. Oh, yeah. Angelique Pettyjohn. Yeah, she had an interesting uh, yeah. backstory. <laughs> as, as opposed to the, uh, the actress who uh, played Chekhov's uh, paramour. Right. And uh, you all go down. Um, there's a lot of pain acting in this episode, and that's something I know you were asked to do a whole bunch. Was it fun to do those agony moments? Oh, yeah. I, you know, one of the reasons, I don't know if it was conscious on the part of the casting, it probably was, but one of the recurring motifs in the shows was that if anybody was going to get hurt, it was going to be Chekhov. Yeah. <laughs> Why Chekhov? Poor guy. Because he's the youngest. He's the least disciplined in terms of being able to handle that kind of thing. And they needed somebody vulnerable to be able to project this idea that, that there was real danger here. Right. You couldn't have Scotty or uh, McCoy um, scream and carry on. It was unbecoming. But the right. youngest member is not as strongly um, programmed and as, as mature to be able to handle that. So let's show the Jeopardy by showing Chekhov in pain. Well, you did a great job at it. <laughs> <laughs> so they stop the callers, and now we know how hard it is going to be to escape, and they lock them up in these uh, cages in their quarters, and we're back on the Enterprise. And again, it's, you know... These scenes go on a little bit for me. A little redundant? They're, they're very redundant where we go back to the Enterprise because it's the same conflict. But but I do, they each have a moment that I do like. Don't quote odds and don't give me any more dispassionate logic, Mr. Spock. Just keep looking for it. I would welcome a suggestion, Doctor, even an emotional one as to where to look. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I think one, one of the things, Walter, we've talked about in doing the show is we've kind of gone... Which isn't really true, but what if we see these characters evolving? Do they change over the course of the show? Do they learn lessons? Do they grow? And one of the things that we've sort of seen is that Spock does seem to grow. Like when you see him in the Galileo 7, he makes a lot of terrible choices. 
And now he's will he's more willing to ask for help. He's more willing to, you know, work with the other people. And him asking McCoy in this moment and saying, maybe an emotional suggestion would help because he doesn't know what he's doing. I think and it's really interesting. Not, he would not have done that in the Gallery of Seven. I don't he would he definitely didn't wouldn't do that. He didn't do it in That's the Gallery correct. of Seven. Leonard was so deeply, deeply and authentically involved with that character. I mean, I didn't get to know Leonard at all. Uh when he was playing Spock. I mean, and he evidently even took that home and it caused conflict at home, caused problems at home. So that is by way of introducing the idea that Leonard probably contributed to the dialogue. Mm -hmm. He was very, very into that. He was very much into, into the integrity of the character and making him as real, not as human, but as real and is consistent with what he believed him to be. And Leonard was a bright man. And I know that, you know, there, there, were, there were conversations that were had off camera and off the, on, off the set uh, where he made contributions. So it's quite possible, although I don't know for a fact, quite possible that what he ultimately said was m much of what he uh, wanted to, be, to see on, on paper. Um, we've heard that a lot. We've we've heard a, a, of a lot of stories of him contributing things or refusing to do things that he felt didn't yeah. fit the character. This is a last moment of the scene that I think could be better, which is McCoy says, First time you've ever asked me for anything, and it has to be an occasion like this. Because <laughs> McCoy has no suggestion. I wish he had a suggestion. I wish he said something that helped because... You could have said the Sherlock Holmes quote that Spock says in Star Trek VI, when you've eliminated everything that's impossible, whatever's left, no matter how improbable, is must be the truth. Like if McCoy had given that kind of piece of advice, I think it would have built up the characters rather than, I got nothing to tell. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I know got anything. nothing to add. Yeah. yeah. Now, here, here's the thing. Gamesters of Triskelion was almost the last episode of Star Trek ever produced. And I'll, I'll get to uh, the bigger conversation point as we go along. But the other thing that's, that I find interesting about when Gamesters was filmed. So when you came on, when you filmed your first episode, Cat's Paul, Gene Kuhn was running the show and Desilu was producing Star Trek. By this point, by this point with Gamesters, Gene Kuhn was gone. And Paramount had bought Desilu. Paramount was now producing Star Trek. Now, do you have any observations as to like what the difference was on the set when Paramount took over from Desilu? No, I, I have no, you know, it, there may well have been. And, then, and it's, it's even conceivable that I was aware of it at the time. But with the passage of half a century, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have, I don't recall any differences. Well, and it's also, you know, we just talked to Ralph Sedensky a week ago. Is that as an actor, your job is to show up and do that part? You know, for Ralph, whose his budget is constrained and his schedule is changed, he's feeling all that stuff. But directors don't usually dump all that information on actors because. You don't want to know that, you know? Yeah, yeah. We were, you know, and I'm not crying in my beer. I'm inordinately grateful and will always be for my being involved with Star Trek. 
but there may have been conversations. There may have been with Bill, and there may have been right. with Leonard that were, you know, off the set. You know, the four of us were definitely even Jimmy, although he had considerably more to do than we did, was not part of any administrative right. uh, contribution. Yeah, he came in to do the job. Captain, the Enterprise, they will be trying to find us, won't they? They'll be trying, but where do they look? We're here and we don't know where it is. This system stars a trinary, limits it a bit, but we're a long way from the Enterprise if we're even in the same dimension. About 15 years ago, some diehard fans who've worked on the more recent shows went back and redid the visual effects on the original series. So when, when they show the title card for Gangsters of Triskelion, mm. because, you know, initially Kirk says it's a trinary sun. Right. So for the visual effects, the redone visual effects, you actually see there are three stars around it. So I thought that was a, that was a really nice touch. And then Lars shows up. Lars, the uh, uh, Val Kilmer lookalike, at least to me, as played by Steve Sandor. He was on TV shows like The Virginian. Ironside, The Streets of San Francisco, Charlie's Angels, and The Fall Guy. So he was a, he kept working as a as a, a guest performer throughout the well into the eighties. And this scene is really troubling. And yes, I, I, I I don't know. And I, I'm really curious what their intention was, what they wanted us to think happened. What are you doing? I have been selected for you. And Kirk is calling out, saying, are you all right? And then we hear screams and shadows moving and obvious signs of a struggle. And Kirk, as his thrall, Shauna, enters, reaches out through the bars and says, What's happening to the tank, Uhura? So at the end of that first act, uh, Shatner's delivery of his dialogue, like he's so desperate because he's helpless. He can't help her. He's so desperate, he mispronounces her name. Yes. <laughs> That's how desperate. Yeah, Shatner says, Lieutenant Uhura, instead of Uhura. Yeah. yeah. It's forgivable because he's just... He's very upset. upset. Yeah. He's very upset. <laughs> so many of these episodes, Walter, you know, we've, we've seen over and over and over again. But since we've been doing this podcast, and we're treating Star Trek as a serialized show, even though it was a standalone episode show, you know, we're seeing that there are themes that are linked... We're seeing that there are character traits that are linked. We're seeing characters grow and evolve, like Steve mentioned with Spock uh, from Galileo 7. But we're also seeing that there is a lot of violence depicted towards women in The Enemy Within. Kirk attempts to rape Yeoman Rand, and now we hear Lars attempt to rape Uhura, but she fights him off. We don't, I don't know that we know that she fights him off. I think that we do know because Lars says, you know, going into, into the next act, he says it is not uh, permitted to refuse selection. It is certainly possible that she fights him off, but I, but I don't know. That's why, and I'm curious, and it's like, what, what, do you have a feeling about how, how, how people felt about this on the set? Words, you know, because it's really scary, actually, I think, particularly for the mid-60s. No. No, I have no feeling. I, I, I people thought uh, if if there was conversation, it was not within my earshot. Um, it's conceivable, but you know, the sixties was a whole different decade. Oh yeah, yeah. And there were manifestations of the difference on our series. 
that represent what was happening in the 60s as opposed to later decades. So it's conceivable that there was some thought about that. But, you know, a, a series that brings into this extraordinary situation where we have these painkillers yeah. on our necks and then brings on this absolute stunning showgirl with a body to die for. I mean, how, how much philosophical integrity is there really uh, when, when, when you do that? You know, you're, 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 you're catering to a very visceral, emotional, erotic uh, sense and bringing this young lady in. And on the other hand, you're asking the, the, us to believe that among the executives, there was a lot of heart-wrenching talk about whether we are treating women uh, in, in a bad way, you know. Well, this is what's so interesting and what Scott and I have discovered so much with Star Trek is it is sexy. Obviously, there's beautiful women in these outfits. It is adventurous. It is sometimes just fun and silly. And your character had some of the most fun moments in the whole show. And it also is going at some of these deeper issues in some ways. Um, and uh, so we come back in Act 2. And as you say, he says you're not allowed to refuse selection. But he is also buttoning his clothes. Well, maybe he had his clothes off. Well, this is the thing. And again, part of it is coming from a 2022 way of looking at things and not a 1967, 68 way of looking at things. And we see, by the way, that Ahura is holding like a metal plate. So she clearly had been fighting him off. And now Shauna goes into Kirk's cell and sits down. So Shauna is played by Angelique Pettyjohn. Uh, not her real name. Her birth name, Walter, is Dorothy Lee Perrins. But on TV, she was in shows like The Girl from Uncle, Get Smart. She was in a Batman episode. The episode of Batman she was in was called A Piece of the Action. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and and she was in uh, the show Love American Style. Of course she was. Of course she was. Yeah. And she was also in an Elvis movie, continuing the theme of Elvis movies. And then in into the, the 70s and the early 80s, she started to get into like softcore porn and you know she fell on hard times uh, uh she was in movies with titles like titillation and uh you know you can kind of imagine this next title style like 69 wow okay but did you know i did not know this walter and i did not know this steve morris that she tested for the role of nova for planet of oh, the wow. apes the role that went to linda harris remember the movie planet of the apes yeah Nova? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She tested for that. She tested L for that. Linda Harrison. Linda Harrison. That's right. Isn't she related to the producer? She was dating the producer. Yes. Yeah. Arthur P. Jacobs. Seems to be an ionization trail. What would account for that, Spock? Exactly the question I've just fed to the computers, Doctor. And this is when, when, when Spock uh, is accused of sending the Enterprise on a wild goose chase. Doctor, I am chasing the captain, Lieutenant Uhura, and Ensign Chekhov, not some wild aquatic fowl. This is the only lead we've had. <laughs> Which is, again, and this is the thing. I think this is very much kind of the same scene we've already had. Yeah, redundant. But we have a good joke. Yeah. With one good joke in it. And then... This is your scene, as you were describing before. In your cell, Chekhov is sitting there, and in comes his drill thrall. Tamun. So Tamun is played by Jane Ross. Jane Ross didn't 
have a whole lot of uh, acting credits. Uh, she was a performer on an episode of the Frank Sinatra show, and she was actually one of the uncredited wild humans in 1968's Planet of the Apes. Oh, wow. But, That's cool. But so, so Angelique Pettyjohn didn't get the role of Nova, but Jane Ross was in Planet of the Apes. It is a nice name. Chiku. <laughs> Chikuf. Chikuf. It is a very nice name. Okay, so Walter, what strikes me about this scene where Tamun, like, is clearly attracted to Chekhov, it's not just the humor and the levity but also the way the scene was shot is it's one camera on the both of you and you're sort of like uh, almost in a profile and you have to turn to the camera while Jane Ross is, is acting and, and, you know, you're able to, to emote in a way that, that she can't really see you, but the audience can. Uh, that must have been a fun scene to film. It was a fun scene. You know, I, I do remember that we had some off-camera conversation and she was a pleasant young lady. The thing that that I was most surprised at was that they doctored her voice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she was supposed to be relatively unattractive and uh, the way the character was written. And the makeup really didn't bring it home. So they added this timber to her voice. I don't know what they did exactly, but it was deeper and all the more reason why I, I was uh, uncomfortable in her presence. Well, what seems to me is that the joke is that because her voice is androgynous. And so it feels like, wait, is this a man or a, a man woman? or a woman? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of how a joke feels to me. Yeah. And that's, and that was added. Yeah. Because you're, what makes the scene is your discomfort is so funny Particularly after Shauna, the beautiful showgirl, walks in, Kirk gets her, and you <laughs> yeah, get yeah. this person. But she's clearly attracted to your character. Yeah, she's clearly into it. But I gotta say that the way Jane Ross played the character, whether or not it's it's not clear if she's a, a, a male or a female, which maybe uh, you could say that Tamun was non-binary. What well, that's what we would say today. I that's think. what we would say yeah. today. Yeah. Um, but I think. I think Tamun is really cute. She was sweet. She was funny. She clearly liked Chekhov. And I think that she she cared about him. I just don't think Chekhov was prepared to have <laughs> sexual in Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> no. Well, this is what, again, I don't want to put too big a thing on it, but you got Lars in this very violent situation. You have Kirk, who's going to seduce Shauna. And then we have Chekhov, who's sort of... In this weird, comic, uncomfortable situation. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of... It's Three very... You're right. You're right. Three very different Very dynamics. different thralls. Um, we're back with Kirk and Shauna, and he's eating, and he... Kirk is going to do what Kirk does, which is he is pumping her for information. He's observing. As opposed to just pumping. Exactly. <laughs> no, he'll do that later. And we find out that once you get vended, which is bought by the providers, you'll get their color. Our race has another name for it. Slavery. Now, here's the thing about Angelique Pettyjohn. Regardless of the fact that after this episode, it, you know, she really didn't become like a respected actress and she fell on hard times. But one of the takeaways from rewatching the games of Triskelion is a, is a new appreciation for her performance 
in this episode because you see Angelique Pettyjohn, you see Shauna go through a transformation. Mm-hmm. She's obviously a strong person, but she's also innocent at the same time. There's a, there's an in, there's an innocence to Shauna because this is all she's ever known, and eventually she is a a, a jilted lover. Right. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot to her character. She goes on a definite appreciate. she goes on a definite journey, and it's interesting now that we're how you know we're halfway through the the show. Now we've seen Kirk make this move a bunch. This is not the first time you're like, oh, okay, I know what's going on. Calls her beautiful. She doesn't know what the word means. He. Fortunately, we have amazingly reflective uh, trays here so he can show her face. Yeah, that's uh, beautiful. And again, he's asking Lars and Chekhov's drill thrall. They weren't born here. Where do they come from? It is not permitted. The exercise interval. And she gives Kirk a harness to put on. This is your training harness. Put it on. Back on the bridge. Are you suggesting that they could have transported over a distance of... You're out of your Vulcan mind, Spock. I'm suggesting nothing, Doctor. I'm merely pursuing the only logical course available to us. This is an entirely useless scene. Yeah, yeah. This is where the redundancy. Yeah, it's like each passing scene on the. It's Enterprise. useless because we. It's it's just repeating the conflict we already had. It doesn't give us new information, and this is where I go like, oh, I wish we had a little bit more. This is why there are things in this episode I totally love. And there are things in this episode are like, oh, like I would have liked, I would rather have another Chekhov and his drill thrall scene or have a Kirk and Chekhov scene or an Uhura and Chekhov scene would be the best rather than having this scene, which doesn't do very much. So here's a little bit, a little bit more backstory about the production of this episode. When Star Trek was renewed for its second season, it was given an order of 16 episodes. Those 16 episodes were, were produced by Gene Kuhn. The last of those 16 episodes to be produced was A Private Little War. That was the one with the hill people and the villagers and the... The gentleman who plays the head of the, of the villagers. I got him. I helped get him the job. He was, he was my instructor oh, cool. at UCLA. Oh. oh. He was the person most instrumental in uh, my becoming an actor. Is that's, that right? That's so cool. Yeah. That's great. And he's the only one I was ever able to get a job on the series. Oh, that's fantastic. But that episode, Walter, A Private Little War, was the last ordered episode for season two. In the interim, while they were waiting for word if we're going to get the back 10, NBC ordered two additional episodes of Star Trek to be produced. One was Gamesters of Triskelion. Followed by Obsession. Now, Gamesters or Triskelion was actually coming in over budget. So they flipped the production and Obsession was filmed first. And Gamesters or Triskelion was the second of those two episodes. And one of the ways that they brought Gamesters or Triskelion back down below budget, and this was something that Paramount, the new producers, were very insistent on was keeping the show on schedule and on budget. John Lucas, when he was doing his rewrite of Gamesters, he added more scenes on the Enterprise because they were to bring far, the budget down. Right. They were far less expensive than shooting that big stage with all the extras on stage ten 
So that is why you have the redundancy of those scenes on the bridge. That makes sense. And we're back on the, the training arena, whatever it is, and they bring in this guy who is a thrall who has uh, been slow in obeying command, and he is going to be the practice target. So all of you have to hit this guy, and Uhura is going to be first. And she refuses. He said, and, and by the way, it was not lost on me, not even from yeah. early age, that this is 1967 when this episode was being filmed, and Uhura a black woman was being told to beat a black man. And she says, no. Oh, good for her. It's a good good Uhura moment. Whenever she's given the chance, she's always great. She's awesome. It is not allowed to refuse a training exercise. I don't care whether it's allowed or not. I will not do it. None of us will do it, Belton. You know the sidebar. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I... I, I can't always guarantee I'll remember from one second to the next. <laughs> Please, yeah. You know, the, the moment where Chekhov says, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh-huh. With Star Trek Six. That was her line. That was oh, really? her line, and she refused to say it. That makes sense, because it was, yeah. Honestly, I think it's funnier coming from you. It's a better line coming from you. Yeah. And I, I, I you know, I'm a big civil rights guy, and I knew where the line was said. I knew it was in the Poitier film. But I never made a connection that Klingons are being compared to the black people, you know, uh, which was obviously one interpretation of that line. Well, they definitely in that scene, in that dinner scene, talk about human rights. Listen to how racist you sound. Alienable rights. Yeah, alienable rights. rights. Yeah. So so it's definitely a theme in that movie. You, and you get the line as you're refusing to uh, to to hurt this guy. You get to yell, Cossacks. I, I always want to know more about, well, what does Chekhov think about Cossacks and Rush? Like, why is that the word that pops out, you know? You know, uh, again, it's, it's not appropriate for this conversation, but it's in my head. Um, between the second and third season, Gina invited me to his home. That's when he was still living with his wife, oh, although I didn't meet her. And um, he showed me some memos. And I think Mark Cush might have even had them in his book. But one of the things they said was, let's have more episodes that involve Chekhov. Uh, the, the fans seem to re- respond to him. But let's not do the stuff where he invented in Russia. Yeah. So that's sophomoric. Well, I think that was a mistake. I mean, I mean, it's a handle. It's something people can grab on, right. you know, and they want handles. They want to they want to be able to see from one episode to another consistency in character and things they can identify. By. You know, I have to tell you that when I was a very young kid and I was getting into Star Trek for the very first time. The 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 first episodes that I that I watched on syndication, the show was already in its second season. So the episodes I was watching were the ones with you in them. So for me, a young guy, to watch the show and see this character who's, I mean, older than me, but still a young person, my entry point, my point of connection into Star Trek was Chekhov because he was the, he was the youngest person. And That's what the point of the character was and of being there was that, that is more accessible to, to young people. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. 
I realize I have a question for you. And it's come from, because we've been, we've been watching this show in the most detailed way, like really trying to see everything. So you've got all these jokes that was invented in Russia that happened. And there are times where it seems to me that it's absolutely sincere. I firmly believe this was invented in Russia. And there are other times where you're smiling and it feels like you're enjoying the joke. Yeah, that- I think you're right. I think both things are true. Yeah. And I don't know how to reconcile them. Well, it, it, well this is because it particularly, I think, in Who Mourns for Autumn Eyes, which is where I really start to see your character. That's part of why I felt like you fit in because you were Chekhov's character was comfortable joking with Captain Kirk, wasn't in, didn't seem intimidated, felt like part of the family. And that's why it was so fun to go, oh, Chekhov knows this is funny. At least in that time, you know. I, I agree with you. I think it was a mistake for 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 Roddenberry to not do that anymore. Yeah. I, I thought that was a great, unique character trait that no one else had on that show. And you're right. I'm sorry that, that we didn't get to see that continue. Needless to say, Galt doesn't like you yelling Cossacks and all the resistance. And so it hits you guys with the pain. And then after it, he <laughs> says... Uhura, take your place on the triad. Tie her. And that is when Kirk steps in. I'm responsible for the actions of my people. I demand to see the providers. Captain, since you assume responsibility for your people, you will take the punishment. And again, this doesn't it doesn't quite make sense because they say it's less painful than, than the collar. But then they say It's a shame to lose you, Captain. But it is worth it. As an example to the others. So they're saying, on the one hand, hey, this is going to be less painful than hitting you with a target. But now they're also saying, you're going to die. So this brings us to the end of Act 2. And we see Clue, the big guy, is standing there getting his whip ready. And Kirk has been his, has his, his hands tied behind his back. And he has to fight this guy with a whip. And again, I mean, it's fun. It's exciting. There's a lot of action in this episode. But it is also... Seeing our three heroes here, it's upsetting to see them tortured in this way. So we come back right into the fight scene. Of course, during the fight scene, Kirk is giving a log. Again, I don't know how he's doing but this. But you, you, you always point this out. So, so we, are, we enter a scene when it's happening. Right. We're so, right in the middle. So this, this fight has been underway because Kirk's shirt is ripped, of course. Yes. Uh, and, and you can <laughs> see through the rips in his shirt that he's been bleeding from being whipped. Mm-hmm. But this is also a scene, you know, there have been other, other previous episodes like Court Martial or Space Seed where the fight scene is clearly a stunt person. You know, but in this scene... It's Kirk. That's yeah. Shatner. It's Shatner, yeah. He wanted to do it uh, as much as he could. And he wanted to... To do those physical scenes. He gets that thong that's tied his wrist behind his back untied somehow and does a really cool roll to free his uh, hands by getting them under his feet, takes the guy's back and is choking him out and Kirk wins. So just in season two, we have seen Kirk get beaten up a lot. He is almost cut in half and killed in a mock time. He is choked by Apollo in Who Mourns for Adonais choked by the companion in mm. Metamorphosis, beaten and stabbed by uh, a, a spy in Journey to Babel. <laughs> and we'll see him get whipped again pretty badly in Patterns of Force. Oh, yeah. But when he does that role, freeing his hands cool. to, to jump up and, and jump on Klug's back and choke him, when Kirk wins, because up to this point, 
whenever there was a fight, it was Galt who would say, hold. But at this point, the voice that you hear is not Galt. This is a voice that has an echo and a reverb, and it sounds mechanical. And when this voice says, hold, Kirk and Uhura and Chekhov are looking up like, where did that come from? So first of all, now I'm going to have to make your voice all reverby and big when I I put the show together. Hold. And we hear, and this is, you know, there's certain things that are Star Trek cliches, and we've reached one of them, which is... Provider 1 bids 300 quatloos for the newcomers. Provider 2, 350 quatloos. Provider 3, 400. 1,000 quatloos. This is in tons of Star Trek jokes and sketches and... These are the providers. So you hear three voices, three different providers. Provider number one, the main provider, is voiced by Bart LaRue, who is best known up to this point for being the voice of the Guardian of Forever in the City on the Edge of Forever. Voice of provider number two is Walter Edmondson, who was the voice of Balok, young Balok, oh. at the end of the Corbomite maneuver, and uh, also the voice of the Keeper in the Menagerie, oh. when they redubbed the voice of the Keeper gotcha. in the Menagerie. The voice of provider number three is Robert Johnson, and Robert Johnson was, they're keeping it in the Desilu family, Robert Johnson was the voice on those tapes that would self-destruct at the beginning of every episode oh, Mission Impossible? of Mission Impossible. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Yep, that's the one. Uh-huh. That's awesome. And Provider 1 wins the bidding. They have been vended. We're free people. We belong to no one. Such spirit. I wager 15 quatloos that he is untrainable. 20 quatloos that all three are untrainable. 5,000 quatloos that the newcomers will have to be destroyed. Some interesting gambling going on. I don't quite understand the gambling system, but it's okay. (laughs) Seems a little weird. Um, We hear Mark them, and Galt comes forward, his eyes flash, and suddenly their collars are now red. Now bear the mark of a fine herd. But I must warn you, any further disobedience, now that you are full-fledged thralls, will be punishable by death. Does that mean anything they do wrong, they're going to die? See, that's what I thought. I thought that, that, okay, you know, they've been given a, a free pass up to this point. Yeah. But if something happens now that they bear the mark of Provider 1, they're, they're, that's it. They're done for. Which, this is why I go, like, this is all a little inconsistent. You know, it fe- you know what it feels like? It feels like another writer came in and had to make a bunch of quick changes and didn't check to make sure everything works together perfectly. You know what else this feels like? Yeah. Bread and circuses. Mm, yeah, totally. So bread, bread and circuses, they're fighting these gladiatorial games for, for amusement. And in this one, they're, they're fighting these games that are kind of gladiatorial for the amusement of the, of the providers. And NBC had a standards and practices person assigned to Star Trek. He was basically supposed to be a fresh set of eyes who could be objective when he thought that things weren't right for the show or he thought that things were too similar to previous episodes. And in this case, Stan Robertson voiced concern that Gamesters was getting too close to, uh, to the territory of, of bread circuses. To me, one of the most egregious logical errors 
in the series was Spectre of the Gun. How so? Inspector of the Gun, the, the premise or the the solution to the problem was that we understood that it was all an illusion. Right. And once we understood that, it would not have any effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That information is not conveyed until after Chekhov dies. That's right. I, I've always had this thought. Go, go ahead. I'm sure I agree with you. Yeah. So being an actor and... and thinking primarily in, in terms of self-preservation. <laughs> I, I love that scene with Sure. Guys. And uh, so I neglected to say anything until after it was shot. Smart. And then I went over to the editor, because I also have a sense of integrity towards the profession of writing. And I explained to him that Chekhov would not have survived. And there was a beat and he said, yeah, we realized that. We said, "Screw it." <laughs> well, because and then they give the explanation that only the that the girl was the only thing that was real to you, and that's why you survived. And that is pretty weak, a pretty weak explanation. God, I don't even remember that. Yeah, that's the that's the final moment. Like, oh, he was only thinking about the girl, so therefore the bu bullets weren't real. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is pretty weak. It's weak. It's weak. I mean, you know. I've never had to write 26 episodes of a TV show in a, in a year. I mean, that it's a lot to do. And you're not going to, I had a great, uh, when I was in film school, I had a great teacher who was Sam Denoff who wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show and created that girl. And what he said was, you really hope that you mostly get B's and that you get a few A's and that you don't have any D's, but you're not going to hit A's every single time you make a show. It's not going to happen. We got another scene on the bridge. I'm, and it and is it's the same. Absolutely. Same, same thing. I mean, it's just a quick cut back to the bridge. And now we are back on Triskelion, mm -hmm. in which we see Shauna and Kirk running through ruins, ruins that have been there for who knows how long. And the ruins look familiar, Steve. And I, Steve loves when they recycle things and save money. <laughs> yeah, I do. So, so Steve, if the ruins of Triskelion look familiar because you saw them, in the man trap as the ruins uh -huh. on planet one, M113. Ah, <laughs> oh, got it. So they just went back to the storage unit yes, and they, they pulled did. out That's some right. pieces. That's some exactly pieces. what they did. Why didn't you guys be so enthusiastic about Star Trek <laughs> when you realize all the mistakes and... You know what it is? We talked about this when we first started. I have unconditional love for Star Trek. You know when you, 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 you love someone and you know they have flaws and you see them and you understand them? That's how I feel about Star Trek. Okay. And part of it, and, and Scott and I are exactly the same age, and we both grew up with this, and Star Trek was like formative for us growing up. Yeah. And particularly for me, for me as a writer, like I really think I learned story structure from Star Trek, because it's really, when it's good, it's really, really good. And morally, it's deep in me, and, and I know for Scott too, and that's why. For me, in addition to what he said, honestly, Walter, what I love about Star Trek is so much greater than the flaws that I see in it. And when, when Star Trek was at its best, which, which it was quite a bit, it makes it easier for me to see when it was not. And it makes me appreciate when Star Trek was at its best so much more. What is your favorite episode? My favorite episode is not an episode that a lot of people, uh, uh, people who listen to Enterprise Instance <laughs> certainly know what it is. Yeah. My favorite episode is called Metamorphosis. It's a beautiful love story. It's an unusual and atypical episode of Star Trek that I think 
represents so much of what Star Trek was all about with tolerance and acceptance and communication and learning. And it's written by Gene Kuhn, who is definitely the best writer. It's directed by Ralph Sinetsky, who is definitely one of the best directors of Star Trek. And it is an episode that when I was young, Walter, I liked it. I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. But as I have grown older, I've grown to appreciate. I had to grow into the strengths of that episode. That is why that's my favorite. Why'd you ask? I was just curious. I was curious where your mind was at and uh, what what about the show. You know, acknowledging its faults, its not its weaknesses. Uh, what would you be willing to overlook? The other thing that I love about about Star Trek is that. Our, our heroes on the show make mistakes and they learn from them. And that is something that also I have come to appreciate as I have grown older. It is definitely something that I've come to appreciate since we've been doing this podcast uh, because we see that, that these, these people, the Enterprise crew, they, they do something, it's not working, and they learn why it is not working. They try something different. And they grow because of it. And sure, I mean, like you talked about before, like season three definitely had its problems, but there are, there's a lot of greatness to be found in season three. Okay. And how about you? What's your favorite? I am so bad at picking favorites, but it's I get, I, I'm just terrible at it. But it's... it's what, what constitutes right or wrong? So, well, that's where I stress out. I want to make sure I get it exactly right. Yeah. Um, I would say... It, arguably the greatest episode is City on the Edge of Forever. My favorite is probably, I think the tightest episode is Mirror Mirror. I think Mirror Mirror in terms of structure. <laughs> thank yeah, you. There you go. In terms of structure, <laughs> like in craftsmanship, Mirror Mirror is the tightest, but I think my favorite is Balance of Terror. Like for me, Star Trek is at its best when there is a, a, a good adventure. It asks really interesting questions and the story is personal. That's when it's at its best. And so for me, the basic idea that person you believe is your enemy might be more like you than you think. That is so central to who I am as a person, that idea. And, 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 and this is something we hear. It's a constant theme in Star Trek of look a little bit deeper, try to understand a little bit more, take your ego out of it a little bit to try to look at this other side. That's the, that's the big one for me. And that's probably why Balance and Terror is number one. Was the episode where we were arming people and the claim... That, so that's Private Little War. Well, that's the one that I find most objectionable. Because I don't believe in that. That's, that's a rationale that just leads to mass destruction. So that's, just... why, that's why we don't have the atomic bomb in, in the production. Well, and it literally we're dealing with it at this moment in Ukraine. You know of yeah. what of what to do, so we just did that a, a couple of weeks ago, and we had an intense conversation because it is a, I think it is a very very troubling episode. There was a quote that I read of yours again when we were summing up our thoughts on the episode. Uh, there was a quote that you had said that at the time when you were making a private little war, that you thought it was against what Star Trek really was representing, mm. and. And I've read in another interview where you were talking about that, where you you did not agree with uh, Captain Kirk's decision to arm the Hill people at the end of that episode. Right. But that's that's that that's the thing is that 
I'm thrilled that that there are all these new Star Trek shows in production, and and that it's it's bringing in new fans and all that kind of thing. But the the original show, nothing like that had ever been done. And and sure, you have the the outfits designed by William Tice that were scantily clad and all that. And the, but you have these stories, some of which are so provocative and hold up so so well, like A Private Little War. It's a very topical episode after 55 years. Shall I? Don't you ever look at the night sky, the lights up there? I have looked at them. Well, those are stars, and around them are planets. And there are people that live on them, just like us. And this is where I think he starts to get her a little bit. She starts paying attention. But let me ask you this. Does Kirk care about Shauna? I was going to ask the exact same question. Again, it's a weird one, because... I don't think so. I think he does. Okay. I think he cares about her. Well, cares, sure. Cares. But he's doing this. He's putting this on. When you, when you look at, at the way that Kirk has traditionally uh, manipulated his way into getting, getting the information he wants, whether it's uh, you know, uh, Lenore Caridian. Yep. Okay. Whether it's uh, you know, Catspaw. Yep. Um, you know, and in this episode... You know, clearly he, he wants to save Chekhov and Uhura and get mm-hmm. on the planet. But he also sees what's happening with the Thralls. He sees that they are slaves and he wants to do more. He wants to do more than just get off the planet. He wants to, like, he, he, he sees what's happening. I, yeah. I, I think that he cares about Shauna. I think he's using her, but I think that he also really does care about her. Well, I think he doesn't like slavery and wants to free these Thralls. And, you know, she's hot. <laughs> I mean, Dame Triskelion, the show with the hot lady. Yeah. I mean, that's what drives that episode. All the uh, altruism and the philosophy and the humanitarianism, notwithstanding. You got that lady out there who is... Yeah. You know, and that's what drives that, that episode. And, and, and we can identify... Um, we, we become absorbed and engrossed in the story because we're identifying with Kirk, right? Who is who is you know the hero, and he's elbow to elbow. He was a euphemism. I'll tell you the thing I find interesting about this scene is Kirk makes at the end his impassioned speech about love and men and women getting together and taking care of each other and how important love is the most important thing. And one of the things we've talked about a lot in going through the series, love is the one thing Kirk denies himself. He, throughout the entire series, separates himself from love. You know, he chooses, I got the Enterprise, that's my love. And yet, in this speech and in the Apple, he's saying love is the best thing. That's really the best thing. Tell me about the providers. What do they look like? Where do they live? And she starts to give answers. I have never seen them, but they are said not to be like us. And then her collar goes off. They stay in... Stop it. And does what he did with Uhura. I'm responsible. Oh. I made her talk. Oh. It steps right into that close-up in a way that Shatner really likes to do. Stop it! You're killing her! That's the end of Act 3. Yeah. Before we move on to Act 4, I have another question for you. Yes. Who do the providers remind you of? Um, the um, uh, the Telosians? Trelane. Yeah, that too. Trillian, you have these providers, these these powerful beings that are so bored 
that they treat mortals like playthings. Well, this is why I said the Telosians, who are who have advanced so far that they've lost connection with their emotions and they have enslaved want to enslave people to live lives through them. Well, that's that's one of the motives of the Telosians. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you bring up the Telosians because in early versions of Games of Triskelion, and and this does still touch on because of uh, you know what Lars was trying to do and and talking about uh, uh, selection and all that is that the thralls were being used as breeding stock. Mm. But the producers of Star Trek, when they were producing gamesters, felt, oh, didn't we do that in the cage? Maybe we should stay away from that. Because it was also a red flag for, you know... Right, for the network. Network and- in 1967 and 68. But the providers are another race. Another race. And this is another thing that I like about Star Trek. Is, you know, here you have the Enterprise, the Federation, you have this powerful starship and everything. But we are constantly meeting and learning about races that are far more powerful. You have the Organians, you have the Thasians, the Metrons, Trelane, Apollo, etc., etc., etc. Is that what you humans call compassion? It is interesting, but it has no value here. They stop torturing her, and she is shocked that he would risk his life for her. You. You risk bringing their anger on yourself. Why did you do it? And, of course, he takes this opportunity to move in for the big kiss. And clearly, Kirk is a good kisser. That's, I think, something that seems well-established. Because she clearly likes it. And then, in the midst of this, there's a bong, and there is Galt. You do indeed present many surprises. Because you have amused the providers... There will be no punishment. Back on the Enterprise, this scene actually is more interesting. They're still arguing with him, both Scotty and McCoy, and Spock pulls them over to the corner and in a soft voice says, Gentlemen, I am in command of this vessel, and we shall continue on our present course. And he leans in and says, Unless it is your intention to declare a mutiny. I love McCoy's reaction and Sky's reaction. Mr. Spock. (laughs) Um, And he finally gets them on his side. It's uh, Shauna and Kirk again. And now she's... Acting weird. Acting weird. This is the part of of Angelique Pettyjohn's performance where I went, wow, this is actually a fully realized performance. You're seeing her go through all these phases. Kirk has aroused feelings in her that she's never felt before and she's not comfortable with them. Yeah and more kissing and then in the weakest possible knockout he goes kirk goes like this yeah, he just punches her knocks her punches out. her in the chin and immediately knocks her out it doesn't really make sense and then what makes me sad is he he uses her keys to open the door he opens up your cell where you have also taken out and tied up your thrall. Really? Yeah. It's all off camera and i go instead of having all these scenes on the enterprise i would have loved to see chekhov take out his thrall. That would have been more fun. And then Uhura has made Lars go away, apparently by complaining about the food, which again, I don't, that doesn't make any sense yeah, at all. no sense at all. No sense. He's find so much wrong. <laughs> but we love it. <laughs> but we well, love it. We you know, love it, Walter. We're, we're looking at all of it, you know, warts and all. I think it's to your credit because you can see the failings and you can see, and I mean, you're aware of the failings, even though you have this extraordinary enthusiasm for the, for the product. Yeah. This is good, you know. It's the people who who have extraordinary enthusiasm for stuff 
who don't see the failings that, you know, that I find disconcerting. Again, we're planning to escape. And again, I'm just going to say another thing that doesn't make sense, which is we've established the providers can see them everywhere they are. And so the fact that they're going talking about planning their escape, it's like they know the providers are seeing all this. They end up right back in the arena because we only have money for so many sets. And then Gald appears. And hits him with the pain and then stops the pain. So apparently any uh, breaking of the rules doesn't bring us death. Right, that's a good point. Uh, the Enterprise has arrived in orbit. We've seen that there's some humanoids there. I shall beam down, Doctor. If I'm unable to communicate, a landing party may be necessary. Well, Mr. Spock, if you're going into the lion's den, you'll need a medical officer. I do like this line. Daniel, as I recall, had only his faith. But I welcome your company, Doctor. And just as Spock and McCoy are are making their way to the turbo lift on the bridge, all the lights on the bridge of the Enterprise start flickering, and then we hear the voice of Provider Number One. No, Mr. Spock, you will not leave the ship. And we have this weird situation where Kirk and all of our people on the planet can hear the voices from the bridge of the Enterprise. The bridge and the Enterprise can hear the providers and Kirk's voice. And so Kirk gives, takes this opportunity to give a big exposition dump. But, it but, says, but, it's, but it's, a gr- it's a great moment because the, the look on Kirk and Chekhov and Uhura's faces that the Enterprise found them. The Enterprise is there. Fuck. Fuck. He's almost saying... Oh, thank God. But he's not saying. Well, and the cool thing, and and this is, again, this is why we both love the show, is that one of the things we see that Kirk does all the time is he finds an angle, is he finds a weakness in the opponent. And this first weakness is... But these providers haven't the courage to show themselves. He's calling the providers chicken. You present no danger while you wear the collar, and you wear it as long as you live. Then show yourself. There is no objection. And we have a bong, and now Kirk is down in the cave. It is such a iconic image of Star Trek, these three brains. So the, the provider's chamber, Walter, you know, all, all the exterior shots of the Enterprise were filmed on stage 10, while all the, the Enterprise shots, the, the bridge, you know, sick bay, transporter, that was on stage 9. But the provider's chamber was on neither of these stages. This was done on the Paramount test stage. And these scenes with Kirk talking to the providers was actually filmed on the second day of production of Gamesters of Triskelion. And Steve, you see, Steve loves when they save money by reusing other things. So check this out. So the power source for the providers that Kirk is standing in front of is actually the matte painting of Janus 6 that was used in the devil in the dark. And Steve, if the top of the provider's chamber uh, of their, of that dome looks familiar, well, that's because it was the top of Lazarus's ship from the alternative effect. You and your people are most challenging. Yes, most challenging. It was hoped that such new blood would stimulate our stock of thralls. How unfortunate that you must be destroyed. And then we're in a very cool top-down shot. And you call yourself superior. The murderers! Without the spirit to really wage it for the lives you take. And there is a big music sting. And Shatner in what I would say, I feel like we're getting into the beginning of big Shatner, where he's kind of overacting. And he has a realization. And his move is so big. It's funny you say that, because in Mark Cushman's book, uh, for These Are the Voyages, you know, he, he states that around this time, 
in the production of Star Trek is when Shatner started to go a little over the top. So that's very interesting that yeah, you make because, that point. Because in the, in the first season, when you see him observe things or come up with an idea, it's always just a look. It's very subtle. And now, and, and I've heard this multiple times, is that when, when Shatner gets insecure or doesn't feel like the script is quite strong enough. He lays it on thick. He gets bigger. I don't know if that's your experience. And no, you know, I just, I just sort of just accepted what he did. And uh, I wasn't critical about it. Even when he screened out um, Star Trek II. Con. Con. Uh, <laughs> it had to be shown to me, you know, independent of the film, for me to make an assessment other than a positive one. You know, I just bought it as part of the story. Wager, explain yourself, Captain. That is when it hits Kirk. And that moment when he steps back and he has that epiphany. The reason he has that epiphany, Steve and Walter, is because that is when Captain Kirk, when, that's when Captain Kirk remembers the wager he made with Trillane. Oh, smart. That is when he said, ah, okay, <laughs> I'll wager that if I fight the Thralls and win, you have to let the Enterprise go on its way. On top of that, you have to train the Thralls and teach them how to live a self-governing culture. And if Kirk loses, just like the bet he made with Trelane, the Enterprise crew will become Thralls and fight to the amusement of the providers. Or, you know, back in Squire of Gothos, you know, they would have had to fight Trelane. Right. But this is the moment where he goes, aha. Aha, the providers in Trillane are very, very similar. That's interesting. And he makes the same bet. And again, the providers are like a species that have grown so powerful that the only way they can feel is through the pain of others. And they're so powerful that they have become corrupted because absolute power corrupts absolutely. But here's my question. By making this bet with the providers, by changing up the dynamic of Triskelion, is Kirk violating the prime directive so of course he is but i don't care and and this is the i mean like it's a very overly simplistic rule you know See, it's like if you get kidnapped if you kidnap me i didn't come to you you grabbed me it's not my fault if i mess up your culture by trying to escape when you're gonna i don't gonna just stay here and be tortured well that is why steve i don't think that kirk is violating the prime directive because it's not like when 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 they went to the planet of the Romans and the Romans were staging these gladiatorial games on network television, that was their culture. That was just the way it was on that planet. In the case of Triskelion, the providers have kidnapped beings from planets, different planets from all over the galaxy, brought them to Triskelion, kidnapped them, turned them into thralls, forced them to fight for their amusement. Yeah. So the thralls, uh, or excuse me, the providers are the ones that are, are, are interfering with, the, with other planets. So because none of the thralls are natives of Triskelion, they're, oh, they're good. Ex I like it. Right. You found a good loophole. in the I ball. have a loophole in the prime directive, which makes me fully support 110 percent that Kirk is not violating the prime directive by by forcing the uh, uh, the, the providers into this way. You sold me. I'm 100 percent sold on your argument. Um, <laughs> one thing I like Kirk, again, he always manages to find a weakness because at first they go, you can't train thralls. 
The providers are saying that's not going to work. They would never be trained. And Kirk says, we have done the same with cultures throughout the galaxy. Are you willing to admit that we can do something you can't? And they go, oh, okay. But the one thing they do say is that Kirk wanted it to be a three-on-three fight. And they go, no, it's one-on-three. Your terms are unfair. On the contrary, they're extremely fair, since your alternative is death. And Kirk says, no, I accept your terms. <laughs> and that's where Shatner's humor is great. Um, and there's a big bong, and he's back in the middle of the arena, and our crew on the Enterprise get to all watch. And, and we- what does that sound like? Uh, arena. arena, yeah. Arena. Not only is it arena where where the Enterprise crew they get to watch on the view screen when he fights the corner, and then it's also in uh, the sa- uh, 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 the Savage Curtain when oh. they're they're watching Kirk and Spock and Sarek and Abraham Lincoln, you know, fight the others. Right. And we hear the rules, which are that Kirk has to stay on the yellow and never Balls touch the, the blue. blue. Mm-hmm. He totally steps on the blue constantly in the whole fight scene. Yeah, he's all over it. The, the, the director Gene Nelson said. You know, we were we had to shoot this whole episode in six days. Yeah, I think the writer wrote a thing that would have been really cool, but would it take a long time to shoot? Because you'd have to do the shot where Kirk's foot is on the edge and then he almost gets pushed off but manages to keep his foot in the yellow. Like you'd have to really be real specific. Has drill for all become part of the jargon? Is it applied anywhere else? I don't think so. Oh. It sounds so familiar to me. The word thrall. I mean, to you, because the expression, you know, you can be in someone's thrall. I, that's what I like the word, but I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. I've only seen the words thrall in the same context as Quatlu's. When make a reference to Star Trek and, and are doing it in a way where they want people to get the reference. But you're right. I've never heard it outside the context of Star Trek. Actually, it's a good term. I w- kind of wish they did use it somewhere else. But, um, and the fight scene's really good. Yep, the fight and, scene is very good. It's really good. And Kirk, because Kirk has a bunch of, you know, I, the, what defines a good Star Trek fight scene for me is, does Kirk get a couple of cool moves in? And he absolutely does, including the pole vaulting move to go over the blue. He hits Klug or whatever his name is multiple times with the spear. He ducks a spear that uh, gets another guy killed. Yeah, Lars, yeah. Yeah, and then he, he takes out an Andorian, it looks like. Oh, uh, by the way, that Andorian is uh, the Andorian drill thrall is played by Dick Crockett. And the reason why Dick Crockett is worth mentioning is because he was the stunt coordinator for that scene. Oh, okay. Um, it's a, and then, but the one thing they set up was if you kill someone, they're out. But if you only wound them, they're going to get replaced by another thrall, which seems really unfair. That's a tough rule. And so who gets, uh, replaces the injured thrall but Shauna? who is, feels totally betrayed by him because he punched her in the face. And so she thinks that everything that he told her was bull. And they're fighting, and Kirk has her dead to rights and doesn't kill her. And then she has Kirk dead to rights and hesitates right. and doesn't kill him. And then she has him again, or he has her again, and she yields. Surprise! Surrender! And what I like about it is that him choosing not to hurt her is what convinces her that he was, at least to some degree, telling the truth. Boy, that eliminated a lot of sleepless nights for me. (laughs) (laughs) You have won, Captain Kirk, unfortunately. However, the terms of the wager will be honored. You are free. Remove your collars. 
or who are in Chekhov remove their collars, and Kirk just rips his off, it's a, throws it to the ground. It's a, so dramatic. It's a lot of a moment. And then Shauna has a really strange reaction because she's never had that collar on. Right. She no, doesn't know what it's like to have, not have it on. I'm sorry, Shauna. I didn't lie. I did what was necessary. Someday I hope you'll understand. I understand. A little. This is another transition in Angelique Pettyjohn's performance. She understands, and she says, I would like to go to those lights with you. Take me. I can't. Then teach me how, and I will follow you. There's so much you must learn here first. And this is why I really do think that Kirk cares about Shauna. He cares about it. He's saying, don't learn. You'll, they'll teach you. You're not, re- you're not ready to come with me to the stars. Learn. That is a perfectly reasonable argument. I have the exact opposite reaction. Because I don't think Kirk gives Shauna another thought for the rest of his life. I don't think he's, he doesn't want Shauna to come to the Enterprise. He's like, no, no, you, you stay here. You'll be cool. Uh, well, I, I think, well, clearly Shauna is not nowhere. nowhere She's not in the top it. 10 or, no. of, of Kirk women. Oh, of course not. Yeah. But I think he cares about her. I think he cares. Yes, he cares. But 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 I also was strangely moved by Shauna at the end of this episode, which I, I didn't too. expect. Yeah, and, and the what part of the reason why I was moved at the end of this episode is because the music that plays during the last few moments of this episode was was reused from George Dunning's score from the end of Metamorphosis. Right, and it's a beautiful, beautiful score, and Kirk kisses Shauna for the last time. And then Kirk and Chekhov and Uhura take their places. As they are beaming up, the look on Shauna's face, Mm -hmm. she is looking in awe like she cannot believe her eyes. All the thralls, including Galt, can't believe their eyes. And then Shauna looks up and a tear is coming down her cheek. And she says, Goodbye, Jim Kirk. I will learn. And watch the lights in the sky. And remember. Angelique Pettyjohn was so good in this episode and in this moment. And here's why. Around day four of the filming of Games of the Triskelion, and this is what I was alluding to earlier in this conversation, Walter, a source leaked that NBC would not order the final eight episodes of season two. And that Gamesters of Triskelion would be the last episode to be filmed. Do you remember anything about that, the, the sadness that was going around on the set of Gamesters of Triskelion because the word was leaking out that this might be the last episode? You know, I, 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 first of all, I, I can't ever be sure of what I, what I remember is accurate. Number one. I know when we were shooting season three that it was pervasive. We knew it was going to be the last season. They, they let me uh, go and do a, a, a play because, right. you know, what the hell? You know, they, they saved $750. Yeah. 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 So, uh, while I was gone. But n- not with Gamesters. I don't, I just don't recall. I don't think I recall. Angelique Pettyjohn. Uh, was quoted as saying, uh, on my last day shooting where I said goodbye to Jim Kirk, I had tears in my eyes, and those tears were real because I was thinking that this was goodbye to Star Trek. 
And within 48 hours of when that rumor started to kind of go around, NBC reversed its decision and ordered the remaining eight episodes for season two. And Gamesters was not the last episode to be filmed for season two. That's interesting. Well, people had a lot to say about Gamesters. Uh, Joseph Ruskin, who played Galt, said, as actors, we do so much junk. Occasionally, something nice comes along. And that was Star Trek. Gamesters of Triskelion is a well-done episode. Gene Nelson, who directed it, said, Angelique Pettyjohn was as sweet as could be. I thought she was really good on the show, a delight. The first time she came on the set in that costume, the crew nearly fell out of the rafters. She didn't wear a hell of a lot. Angelique Pettyjohn said, I found William Shatner to be friendly, gregarious, rather mischievous, with a twinkling-eyed little smile, a really marvelous person on the set. At first, when I came in, I was very much in awe of working with him, but he instantly made me feel very comfortable. And Shatner, William Shatner said this was one of his favorite episodes. He called it, quote, exciting, action-packed, and fun to shoot. I believe that same quote from Angelique Pazan included at its end, I guess in response to a question, well, I found Walter Koenig very shy. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah that was from, from uh, the book. Yes, she did say that. Yeah, she said she fe- she thought you were shy. <laughs> Who you know would what? be shy around her? Uh, yeah, I'd be shy around her, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it doesn't hold a special place in my memory or in my heart, other than the fact that, that I had that one scene with the other thrall and that there was a little bit more for Chekhov to do. I mean, that pretty much determined whether I had a good time or not, whether it was simply exposition, where I was just pr- promoting the story, or whether there was an actual personal moment when you got to know Chekhov a little bit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about this, and as we've been doing this show, there have been episodes like A Private Little War, like Balance of Terror, where we got real deep and talked about deep, important themes. And I was looking for deep, important themes, and I did not find them in this episode. And what I was thinking about actually is really what you said, Walter, which is that, yes, Star Trek is tackling ideas, but science fiction was a medium of young boys. And that this is an episode with a hot girl and a lot of fight scenes, and it's an adventure, and it's fun. It's not a deep episode, and it has flaws that we've pointed out. And if you can enjoy it on the level that it exists, I think it's pretty enjoyable. And there's not a lot more to look for. That's my feeling. I, I, I agree with that feeling. I just want to just add to it because I've always, I've always enjoyed this episode. I, it's one that, that I've, I've revisited many times. Uh, maybe not as often as Mirror Mirror or Doomsday Machine or something like that, but I have gone back to it, and I and I was um, I was struck this time when I rewatched it for the for the deep dive conversation we just had by how how moving it it, it ends on yeah with with Shana looking up uh, and t- and crying, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there is a message here, and that is freedom has to be you have to fight for it, and. It's it's simple, it's basic, but it's there, uh, and and I think that uh, it it doesn't go deeper than that. It's just very servicey, but it is definitely there. 
And uh, and again, I think uh, that Kirk absolutely did the right thing by making this wager with the providers, sure. and he did not violate that prime directive. He was in the clear. Um, so that's what we think of Gamesters of Triskillian. Of course, we'd love to hear what all of you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page. We'd love to see your comments there. Follow the show at Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And of course, uh, you can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you like movies that are about people fighting while other people watch, well, on my other podcast, The Cinephiles, we've done episodes on Spartacus, Ben-Hur, and Gladiator, all three of which have some similarities to Gamesters of Triskelion. Those are, those are perfect uh, movies to watch uh, as companion pieces to Games of Triskelion. Spartacus will always have a very historic significance because Kirk Douglas hired Dalton Trumbo. Yeah. And and made it public mm-hmm. that he was hiring him at the time of the at the time of HUAC and all of the yeah. terrible political stuff that was going on in this country. It's one. Of, it's so amazing. And Kirk fought for Dalton Trumbull. He, they almost didn't weren't able to make it happen because of bringing him in. Yeah, it broke the blacklist. Absolutely. And it's a great, great film. Make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social platforms so other Star Trek fans will discover Enterprise Incidents if they haven't already done so. And make sure you uh, head to our, our, our page on Apple Podcasts and leave a review for us on Enterprise Incidents. I belong to Twitter, but I hardly ever go there anymore. I used to do it. Um, but I will, I'll make a concerted effort to, uh, to mention that. And, and what's the name on Twitter? Walter Koenig. Walter Koenig. Nice, <laughs> nice to have an unusual easy. name. <laughs> but this is, you know, Walter, I mean, it just, th- thank you so much. And, you know, we want to give a shout out to, to Mark Cushman as well. I mean, his books, the, these are the voyages books are the three most significant books ever written about, about Star Trek. Do you have the same, uh, affection and loyalty for any of the other series? No, I, I, I love Next Generation. I love Deep Space Nine. Those, those other two shows, I, I would say I love them both almost as much as the original series. But, Walter, nothing. I, I mean, the, the original series has informed my life from such a young age, going from, you know, Steve and I are part of the syndication generation. We discovered the show when it was in syndication in the early seventies, which led to the movies and led to all these other shows. But in terms of the sentimental uh, appreciation, just the way that the original show has informed my life, I would not be in California if it wasn't for Star Trek. And that's the original Star Trek. And I I probably would have not been an actor to this juncture if it wasn't for Star Trek. So everyone, uh, uh, thank you again to Walter Koenig and Steve. That was a, That was a great conversation, as usual, here on Enterprise Incidents. So make sure you stick around for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents because we are going face-to-face with a giant amoeba in the Immunity Syndrome. Immunity Syndrome is next on Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly.